welcome listeners to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. If this is your first listen, welcome. Each episode this season stands alone, but if you want to hear more interviews with organizers, activists, and artists about the how of making social change, you can check out past episodes and subscribe. You can do that anywhere you get your podcasts by going to praxisradio.com slash subscribe. This season is a radio show road trip, returning to a trip I took during the summer of 2015 to connect with folks on the ground doing work around responding to climate change and building powerful alternatives to capitalism. In the first episode, in Portland, Oregon, Paul talked about the people who inspire him in the current moment, and one of the names he dropped was Kai Barrow. He was nice enough to put me in touch, and Kai was generous enough to make time to chat with me. So in another imaginative extension of the road trip, in which we pretend I was able to be out longer and make it to New Orleans, where Kai was working to create visual opera around the 10th anniversary of Katrina, let's go to that conversation from this October. Yeah, even just listening to, maybe we'll get into it, but listening to the audio that pops up on the website for for Breach and just hearing it while reading about it rather than like experiencing it in the place is interesting too. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I'm trying to think through this idea of, uh, I think, sonics, you know, what is, what is, what is an abolition? I'm tr- I'm actually trying to think through the question of abolitionist aesthetics, and um, what then does that look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? You know, all those elements. How many um, layers can you identify in this notion of abolitionist aesthetics? Right, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, I don't know yet, but I'm really interested in where the musicality of things are because I'm not a musician and and my work, but my work is pretty, um, it's, it's, I think uh, it's more in alignment with dance and music than it is uh, story and narrative, right? So mm-hmm. I'm trying to kind of work in that, in that medium. So sound is something that I'm interested in. Radio as a medium, I'm interested in. The more and more we become alienated from each other, but this assumption that we're connected because we can see each other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then like what, what markets are going to be developed out of this too, I'm really um, interested in, right? So what are the new, you know, kind of industries that are going to come up or how will the fashion industry and the makeup industry and the design industry shift to make space for this new um, form of communication and then you know so all those things are why I said oh can we take off the picture (laughs) yeah (laughs) well I'm a hundred percent with it especially like it's just weird and that's why I did radio too it's like nobody needs to know no yeah it's the gaze thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the gaze thing. That's what it is. And then, and then also that kind of hyper surveillance, right? Like, um, what, how are we determining what is appropriate and inappropriate, right? So when you see folks who are on these Zoom calls in public, you know, and outside, and they might not have on a mask and 
you know, there's lots of questions around, is this, whose land are they sitting in and where are the other people? And there's just a lot. Let's, we, we could, could is, is this the focus? <laughs> yeah, no, right here. No, yeah, I do want to back up and make sure we get into the other stuff, but no, it's, it's super interesting. Um, do you want to, I guess, to just like officially start, do you mind just introducing yourself for folks listening and maybe just by way of introduction? I'm really curious what you think in your background made you an artist and an organizer because you're described as both. Seems uh, like you're both. Well, I self-describe. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> I don't know how other people are describing me, but I self-describe as an artist and an organizer or an artist and an activist. My name is Kai Lumumba Barrow. So I'm currently based in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I work full-time as an artist. Yeah, I work full-time as an artist, and part of my work as an artist is trying to think through the nexus that is art, organizing, activism, education, how all those things, you know, kind of connect together to help spark movement building and social justice organizing. So it's a way that I have chosen and feel really good about linking the multiple selves. I think that comes out of a Black feminist framework, the many different ways that we engage, you know, our everyday lives. And, you know, I I don't think that I can exist as an artist as a Black artist and a queer Black artist and a queer Black femme artist, we can keep going, elder artist, whatever, you know what I mean? All these different labels, right, that are very, that have with them class associations and class affiliations, right? So the labels aren't just the labels for the sake of identity. There's also with those labels, particular kind of class positionalities, right? And so within those definitions of self, like who I am, I cannot afford to highlight any one particular component of the identity right? Or else the other parts will get short shrifted. So I think as an artist and one who is interested in design and form and shape, to me, that's like, that's, that's the fun part, right? Linking it together, right? Mm-hmm. Other people do it other ways, but I like to do it artistically and aesthetically because it makes me happy. <laughs> good yeah that's a good reason that you don't hear people center enough um and I like yeah. that that take that these roles you know not maybe artist is an identity and a role but these roles in society are are linked in the same way that your identities are and I think that's an interesting way to to frame it so I got in touch with you because Paul Metro Smith Glavin was name dropping you a lot in the interview <laughs> I did with him. I, I asked if he could put me in touch with some folks and put me in touch with you. I'm glad he did. But the framing of this project I'm working on is around this trip I took five years ago, summer 2015. We didn't meet then, obviously. But if we had met then, where where were you right at that moment? What was going on in your life? Uh, summer 2015? Mm-hmm. 
oh, that's so, that's deep. So that's five years ago. We, uh, I was just talking about that. What time of the year? What month? August. <laughs> so, you know, that's Katrina's, that's the anniversary of Katrina. It was the 10th anniversary mm-hmm. of Katrina. And I had just moved to New Orleans with, I don't want to say permission, because that would be weird. But, you know, (laughs) I did reach out to a lot of uh, organizers and artists I know in this city of New Orleans. And I knew them because I had done work with them prior to me reaching out to them in 2015 or 2014. Um, And I, I worked here with Critical Resistance, working around the prison industrial complex and abolition of such in New Orleans, right? And so... I knew that there was going to be a big deal about Katrina. And I was like, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what would be the grassroots response to this anniversary, right? Like, you know, where are we at 10 years later? When we think about this location and when we think about the ways that the city was looking at tourism, et cetera, right? And so I reached out to folks I knew here in New Orleans and asked them if they'd be interested in participating in this project I was citing called Echo Hybridity Love Song for New Orleans. And they said, um, yes. And so I moved here and in August, we cited Echo Hybridity, which was a five-part visual opera. And there were 20, 25 Black feminists who uh, helped cite that work. And that citing included individual, not individual, but like autonomous performances, installations, and community talks, a range of different things. So we were in New Orleans moving through the streets in August 2015, both organizing for Echo Hybridity and then, you know, performing or making Echo Hybridity around the anniversary. Where were you? <laughs> oh God, I was, so I was traveling around. I took July and August. I quit my job and I took my radio show at the time. Now this podcast on the road, on a road trip across the country or across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, uh-huh. I did not go anywhere in the South. I've actually never been to the South. I'm from like North Idaho, Eastern Washington, which is about as opposite New Orleans uh-huh. as you can get probably uh-huh. <laughs> in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, you know, I ran out of money in Kentucky and came back. So it was planned to run out of money then. But so, yeah, that's what that's what I was up to. But it felt like, you know, there were those like the Katrina anniversary, I remember, was very present everywhere because at the time, you know, climate change, a lot of people were talking about climate in this very urgent way. It was the hottest summer so far. It's not the hottest summer anymore, but it was at the time. Um, mm. So, yeah. But mm. Well, good. Thanks for sharing that. And I guess what has what has changed since then in your work or in your outlook or in your your practice? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What a question. What hasn't changed? And then what? It, I mean, you know, I'm not doing like microbiology right now. So <laughs> You're I'm in the same in the same right, universe not, that you were in. Exactly. I'm not they don't call me for the cure to COVID, right? Like so I am so still in my lane, so to speak. 
But um, it's interesting right now because uh, we develop, because literally today we are making a decision about yet another pivot in this current project that we're working on, which is called Breach Adventures in Heterotopia. So what we did in 2015 with Echo Hybridity we have built on in 2020 with So actually at the end of Echo Hybridity, I started really thinking through this next, what we call visual opera, right? which is a serialization of shorts and vignettes that come together to create one solid piece and involves community, uh, like it is community engaged. It's not an individual act. It's not a, you know, it's not an individual genius. It's multiple Mm -hmm. um, um, participants and also both in the making and the thinking and the shaping. So there's a lot of improvisation with it, as well as what was I trying to say? Uh, I forgot what I was trying to say. Oh, also in terms of mediums. So there's multiple mediums, Mm -hmm. right? And so this creates this opera, right? This kind of comedy and tragedy of what we are currently and have been working on, this idea of Black geographies, right? And so Echo Hybridity was looking at Black geographies at a time of climate disaster as well as the dislocation of folks in relationship to you know, Katrina and and other disasters, right? At this point, we are continuing that look at Black geographies with breach adventures and heterotopia. And now we're thinking about it in relationship to a range of different uh, ideas from climate to, to, at this point, we're talking about representational democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And so, we were planning to site or ours, I don't know what we're doing. So <laughs> we have been working to site this opera. I mean, this version, this portion of the opera where our main character, prisoner number 25, runs away to the political circus. And we started citing that in 2018, November 2018, with the idea that we were going to run a slate. We were running a slate of presidents to abolish the presidency along with some other things during this election season. Mm -hmm. So we are still, you know, trying to do that. But with the pandemic, that has put somewhat of a, is, is, you know, is is making us consistently have to pivot because uh, part of the vision was that we were doing a, a series of stump speeches around the country where we were going to articulate our platform, which like I said, includes things like abolish the presidency and, you know, reparations now and forever and, you know, laugh at the state (laughs) and, you know, make black music. And it's just, you know, a range of like abolish celebrity. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're still canvassing and we're still doing that. There's 20 of us and we're spread out mostly South and East, but, Now we were planning to cite the circus on election day, do the final citing on election day, November 3rd, 2020. And we were going to do that in one place called Hush Harbor. 
and we were starting to raise resources, et cetera. And, you know, we have uh, principles of agreement in terms of like, what does it mean for us to go to, on, to, on this journey to get to Mississippi? Hush Harbor is, was envisioned in Mississippi. What does it mean for us to go during this time of racist and, you know, pandemics and mm-hmm. Trumps and shit, <laughs> climate eruption, <laughs> like yeah. how... Should we be moving? You know what I mean? And so um, we were still willing to do that and still come together at this Hush Harbor. And Hush Harbors historically were places where the slaves, runaways, and free people would gather to exchange information, strategize, to perform rituals, what have you. So we were doing this kind of contemporary Hush Harbor. Now, though, after, you know, your president has clowned to the point where we can't make it more absurd than it actually Mm -hmm. is, you know, we feel like it's just I can't fix my mouth to ask people to give any kind of any kind of vision that we're not taking this seriously. And we have planned to have masks on and do, you know, the six feet piece and all like that. But I just think his cavalierness, this idea of don't let COVID dominate your life is so foul and so disrespectful. We also found out yesterday that if one of our people's, one of our comrades' mother died from COVID, mm-hmm. you know? And so like taking all of that and then we just found out another friend uh, who's young has been diagnosed with COVID. So we're getting all hit with all this stuff this week while the president of these these United States is actually completely disrespecting the harm that he is causing for so many people. And we just cannot be anywhere near associated with that disgusting behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just absolutely not how we're going to do this. So even though we were already challenging it, you know, making like a satire of the absurdity of the state, just the act of us coming together in that way is at this point today, it feels very disrespectful, even though. I think the larger picture, the the risk taking, the going against, you know, is the higher calling. But today it feels disrespectful. And I think that's part of how this work is changing in this moment specifically, because we have to be so mindful of the conditions that are constantly changing around us. And making art, again, has to be such an improvisational piece because you have to be moving with what's happening around you. You can't just say, oh, we're going to set this because we have it. Yeah. I I haven't heard. I mean, you talked about doing satire. Paul described some of your work when we talked as being absurdist. I wonder, like, with having such a, I mean, I feel like just from what I've browsed of your work online and talking to you so far, you know, you have this kind of like jazz approach. It seems very improvisational, very collaborative. Um, Yeah. When there's so much we have such an absurd situation and in some mm-hmm. ways i think the only thing donald trump is really good at is like making good television and like 
I, I do think that that's a talent that is at play in this administration is keeping people reacting to them and kind of having this performative mm-hmm. aspect. What does that pivot look for you look like for you? And like, what's your balance between putting your vision out mm-hmm. and reacting to this kind of like wall of bad shit that keeps coming at all of us? <laughs> right. So I right now I, I don't want to say because I have to talk to the to the artists about it, but we are envisioning going forward with it. But the way that we're moving will be, and I'm glad that you read the jazz in it, you know. So we're making a film with this project, and the ways that we're going, instead of it being a live performance piece that we're focusing on, we're focusing more on the filmic version of it. And so that allows us to take, to move slower. So if you think about jazz, I think we're slowing down more now as opposed to speeding up. At one point we were, you know, really like, I was really thinking about what is our grassroots fundraising approach, right? How are we dealing with mutual aid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still thinking about that, but now I'm switching over. Maybe we need to be thinking more about institutional support now, right? Maybe we need to let our folks hold resources and share resources with each other Mm -hmm. and have outside sources support our work. You know what I mean? There's a way for all of these pivots to happen that are more in alignment with what we're what we're looking at. So if Joe Biden gets in, which is probably likely, what does that mean for the left and all the Trump money that we've generated in order to stop this clamp? Does that mm-hmm. then just freeze? Because the problem's done, you know? Because yeah. Biden's the president? Or what happens then? You know what I'm saying? And how are we prepared to deal with those shifts when it's going to be told to us that the only reason this is happening is because of the pandemic and we've got to support people who don't have other resources, all of which are true. Mm-hmm. So then we get pushed between a rock and a hard place, right? Which we already are, between neoliberalism and authoritarianism. But given that we're, and I I might have gotten a little bit abstract there, but I think, you know, like we're being, we will see ourselves being forced to make choices with with this idea of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And I think that, is really going to call on us to think around abundance on every level, not just on the policy level and not just on the institutional level and not just on the mutual aid level. So what does that look like symphonically, right? How do you organize that in a way so that we're working in a court? So each part is feeding the other part, right? And I think that's what we're going to, as we're attempting to like think through and demonstrate aesthetically, right? And, and you know, it won't, we'll have to explain it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So there's a, there's a quote actually that I pulled from an article I'm trying to remember where it's from. I have the link. I'll, I'll link it below, but by Ramalika Imhotep and 
she talks about your work about being about freedom in like claiming these spaces and engaging spaces. And I think abundance is a word you just used that I would link to how she talks about freedom here. She says freedom, not just as a political goal or an abstract feeling, but as a mode of being in the world, a mode of refusing anti-blackness, white supremacy, capitalism, transphobia, homophobia, and all of the oppressive systems they begat through the reclamation of space and an insistence on playful conspiracy. Um, mm -hmm. She also describes you personally as having a presence of militant whimsy. I was just super obsessed with both playful conspiracy and militant whimsy. It's why I think like artists are so important in the movement because everyone gets so stoic and stressed out and like bound up about how scary things are. But like how how do you think what about your work? What is your aesthetic of bringing freedom and play and abundance into our social justice spaces? Oh, wow. Okay, so that's that's great, Ross. Thank you. <laughs> Militant whimsy. Uh, I think that's real. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't know how to even answer that. I think that we have to constantly look at ourselves as we would look at ourselves in the future. Like if we were to look back at ourselves right now, you know, if we put ourselves 50 years ahead of time and we were to look at our practices in the now, what will we see, right? Like what do we learn from how we go about doing our work, right? And I think one of the things that we learn is that how much life do we miss when we're so overwhelmed by, by the state and the hardness that the state creates? Like how much life is happening in between and who's paying attention to that and who's cultivating that? Because it is happening, right? It is what keeps us together. It makes us laugh. It makes us like think. It's stuff we dream on. It's where we set our desires. You know, that's how I came into organizing because I had such a crush on the beauty and the fluidity of the people who were engaged in making change. I thought they were just big mm -hmm. and fun and alive. Those people who looked really somber and like, ah, ah I don't, it's gray. Well, I don't want to go to the gray space. You know, <laughs> That does not feel good to me. And one of my happiest moments is seeing people smile and laugh. So in my work, I like to, even in my painting and everything, I like to add in little jokes and little, I talk a lot of shit. And I constantly am putting that somewhere. And so in a way, it's a way that I am hoping that at some point I'm engaging people in a conversation and a playfulness that nobody gets but them and or me at that. You know what I mean? It's a dialogue happening. It's a way I can communicate with people without it having to be so direct. Right. So there's the playfulness. So I guess that, you know, even though I might not want it to be, I think that's what shows up in the work, you know? And I think that uh, Don Cherry-like, yeah? You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I want to make sure I hit a couple specific questions that I was asking everyone on that trip. But I also just really briefly would love to loop back. I feel like the last, just since 
the pandemic, but definitely over the last five years, you've been working on abolition related to the prison industrial complex and beyond for for some time. But I feel like the ideas of abolition regarding policing, regarding jail, the whole kit and caboodle is like really mainstreamed pretty quickly in a way I didn't expect personally. I'm just curious to hear more. You you talked about having an abolitionist aesthetic when we were first talking at the beginning, but what do you think that mainstreaming means? And is it encouraging to you? How do you feel about it? Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't necessarily think there is a mainstream anal- abolitionist analysis, right? I think that there are some ideas in the mainstream that speak to reforming various aspects of the prison industrial complex. But I think in terms of, I think if you bounce each of these things back around what I would say abolition is actually, and I echo Ruthie Gilmore's ideas that abolition is about the end of uh, ownership, hierarchy, and, you know, control. That's what abolition is. And so, you know, all of the formal institutions that hold those values in place will eventually create cages and structures that limit people's freedom of movement and freedom of thought, right? So, you know, there's got to be, so, 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 even thinking about the system as it exists with it maybe not having a police, like the police don't have certain equipment or get certain equipment, will not, or this jail gets closed, will not in and of itself, you know, create this abolitionist landscape, right? Mm-hmm. Those are parts of a larger. And so I think as much as the practical or the more maybe the more understandable tangible aspects of an abolitionist demand are people are rallying around right Mm -hmm. but I think that is great and not far and we're not we still have to push ourselves so much further Mm -hmm. because it's an ongoing organic process it doesn't just stop you don't just get abolition. <laughs> abolition is a life practice, right? Yeah. How do you deal when you yourself are harmed? How do you deal when you harm yourself? There's so much decolonization that goes into constructing abolition. There's, I don't think, I think it's really disrespectful to our movements to assume that the state will produce an abolition in a twin in a five or twenty year time frame. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous and insulting, and mm-hmm. it indicates to me that we're not really doing the work, and that we don't want to do the work of decolonizing and deep thinking about what we have constructed and created, and what we are constructing and creating for the future. Right, mm-hmm. right. So that's where I'm at right now on that and I and I think you know granted like I also worry about these trends you know yep and like like what happens when the cop 
vice president and the, you know, the whatever he is, the, you know, yeah. Joe. <laughs> Old Joe, yeah. And the Joe. <laughs> Maybe he's just a Joe. What happens when the Joe and the cops become like the gatekeepers, right? And what happens to these demands? Or, and, you know, what happens is that the people say, oh, we didn't really understand it like that. Because we're not really willing to engage in the kind of work, you know, that it takes to really deconstruct, defund, or get rid of the police, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think as a movement, we see this as a challenge and a charge and an opportunity. While we're all locked down mm-hmm. on our blocks and whatnot, holler at your neighbor. Like, and, and, you know, it's not that people aren't doing that. I think also, what is it that we expect to see in what period of time, right? Yes. And so, and I don't think there has to be one thing. I think these things are happening. People have these answers. And how is it, again, that this becomes part of a larger chorus as opposed to a siloed conversation or as opposed to something that is necessarily discordant, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how are these just, because frankly, things are shifting and changing. Right. We just need, I think, to keep it, keep pushing ourselves. And what is the rhythm that we're moving here? What do we expect to see? And how do we keep moving and not have to keep going backwards and reclaiming and restarting again? And, that, you know, that feels very much what we've been doing around the question of police violence. Right. Justifying like why a cop should get like jail. You know, and it's just like it's so ridiculous. The premise, the premise of it, it's illo- it's an illogical assumption, right? We're we're saying, oh, the police should have the tr- whatever. I'm not even. Yeah. Gonna get- no, I got I got you. I think. <laughs> okay. Well, I do want to respect your time. So rapid fire. These these are the two questions I was asking everyone five years ago that I'm asking as many of them as I can again, and they're simple. So what frustrates you the most right now and what oh, is giving you hope? You just kind of, I think you got into some I of think it, I but, that. Yeah. I think we can cut through all of it. I think what, what um, I think it is that, like, how do we use this moment, mm-hmm. right? How do we think about this moment in the long term, whatever long term means in this time frame, right? We're likely to be here in 2050. Right. So what are our lifestyles going to look like? Mm-hmm. Right. Even if we can't think about what systems will change, maybe we can think about some things that will change in our practices. Right. How will we meet? Right. Mm-hmm. How will we will we com- continue to do the same type of actions? If so, why? Is that because we're withholding the tradition of mm-hmm. organizing or is that because we couldn't come up with nothing else? Right. <laughs> what, yes. Like, seriously. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. That's why the show's called Praxis. I'm all about that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that would be real interesting to me. What visions and alternatives. And that's really where my work is. That's what we're hoping to see. We're saying, look, if the empire, if we agree that the empire 
is genocidal, right? What is an abolitionist response to genocide? Let's hear from us, mm-hmm. right? We're calling for more better ideas, not solutions, just some more better ideas. What do we do with a crumbling empire, right? And that, to me, is the creative exercise, right? Let alone how do we do it, just what do we do? And mm-hmm. let's start there, yeah. right? Start there and think wild, right? I'm, it's just an art project. <laughs> you know? like, that's the beauty of making it art. Yes. So somebody's texting me yeah, something I can hear crazy that. right now. Yeah. It's my grandbaby's second birthday. Oh, well, that's <laughs> important. You should get to that. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? Should I just pull all that together yeah. and say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Online is great, I guess. The website, you know. Yes. Okay. Thank you Thanks. so much for your time, Kaive. So nice to talk to you. You um, too, Taylor. I look forward to continuing, huh? Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. Peace. All right. Again, I'm so glad I got to talk with Kai. Our conversation, both when it happened and when I revisited it to edit and write this episode, helped remind me a few things. That transformative social justice work is supposed to be joyful and creative, and that we don't need a perfect solution, just better ideas, like she said. Reflecting on some of her questions, what do we want and how are we trying to achieve it? What works from the past and what should we do away with? These are fundamental questions this show has always been about. So I pulled a couple of interviews from the road, which I loved, but who couldn't return for this season. The first, Daisy, is a comrade in Portland who, at the time, was working with a new worker-owned co-op there. I thought, though their work has changed and we didn't update, that the spirit of this conversation is super relevant to the question of reimagining our daily lives. So here's that conversation from July 2015. My name is Daisy Montague, and I, you know, have been in the activist crowd in Portland and in Olympia. But then we moved to Portland and then I got involved with the industrial workers of the world. And that was pretty interesting because I always wanted to be a part of the IWW and didn't really think that that could exist now. And well, I was wrong and the IWW did exist here and they did and um, are still doing some pretty awesome organizing. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer a part of the IWW, but uh, still really respect what they are founded on and what they historically and currently are doing. And now? And now, in the vein of what the IWW stands for and how they organize in the workplace, we're doing something similar. We started a worker collective and we're, it's pretty awesome because we own this collective, all of us. And it's amazing because we get to see the fruits of our labor and there is no hierarchy, there is no boss. We all own it and we all run it democratically. And it's a really empowering and amazing experience to do that, so. That kind of leads in, a lot of people, and myself even included in this, really love the idea of, you know, escaping from capitalism, domination in all forms, and the rest. And a lot of people who are organizers are also still have one foot in, you know, the system, are still working for a boss, are still engaged in all of that. How does that, like, the economic freedom that that affords you related to, I guess, greater 
struggle beyond that. Right. But. Yeah. I think, and it, that's super interesting because, and I, I think about this a lot because especially like as a small business startup, we're very much beholden. And it, even when it becomes actually a successful business, we're still very much beholden to the capitalist system. You know, we have and work with all, everyone's a capitalist that we work with, but we provide a service and so there's a certain sort of freedom in the way that we govern ourselves because it's democratically and no one, we don't have to submit to power every single day. When we go to work, we don't have to, you know, I want to sit cuss because I'm a cusser. You, <laughs> That's I can okay. edit it. I don't okay. care. <laughs> but we don't have to kiss anyone's ass. You know, okay. we don't have to, yeah. we don't have, we don't have <laughs> to do, we don't have to do and say whatever the boss would mm-hmm. like us to say. We don't have to, you know, manipulate ourselves to say the, the nice things or do exactly what they say. And so that's really, really amazing. When we have an issue, we have to communicate that with our fellow workers and say, hey, you know, and that organically arises. You know, mm-hmm. there, there will always be problems. There will always be something that happens But we don't have to submit our power every single day in the workplace and have the fear of losing our job because the person in power decides that they no no longer want to deal with us Mm -hmm. or that it's economically better for them to get rid of us so that they can continue to exploit our labor in whatever manner or fashion they would like. We're not enriching one person we are, you know, making a living for ourselves together. Mm-hmm. And that's what's, like, so amazing and powerful. But, like I said, I think that we're very much beholden to the capitalist system in many, many ways. And until there's more worker collectives out there, and the, the rule will, would be cooperation and how to support each other, then we're going to continue to have to figure out and unfortunately appease the capitalist power in a lot of ways. But I do see it being a useful bridge, kind of. When people, I think it's very overwhelming for people to discover the reality of what we're dealing with and living in and realizing there's names for all of the, like, daily humiliation that they feel in this system Mm -hmm. and all of that. People want to get out. Mm -hmm. But it's so daunting when it dictates so many aspects of our lives that I feel like there's a lot of people kind of, like, standing on the edge of this thing like waiting for because we all have to jump at the same time kind of in some ways to leverage our power but this is one of those ways where you're it's it's a big step out right. into the the newness so yeah mm. I would add to that that I think not only is it a bridge it's it's so imaginative and courageous to to create something like this because a lot of the times I think the left has like tons of criticisms and you know like very much valid good criticisms that are like hey like the system is super oppressive it's strangling us it's killing us and and you know fuck the system okay mm-hmm. yes absolutely but like there has to be there has to be those people who are creating the system that they want to see, mm-hmm. you know, the new world that they want to see. And that's what IWW says. They say, you know, creating a new world in the shell of the old. So what is that, you know? And that this is one of the things, is that, like, if we are to work, which is fine, I think, 
but it has to be rooted in you know cooperation and love and compassion and not enriching someone on the top of this hierarchical system that is exploiting other people's labor and lives for the enrichment of themselves mm -hmm. so that's not only are we dismantling that we're also saying this is what we'd like to see and I think that that's I think that that's super powerful I don't think you can go back from experiencing an actually democratic, small d democratic, like direct democratic participation in a workplace or in a home even, or I think it ruins your taste for accepting less than that. And right. that's really hopeful, right? To like seed right. that for people and the notion, just the confidence that we build for people, because that's a huge part of the problem is that people don't have belief in themselves a lot of the time. People don't think they can do something like that. Right. Let alone, like... And why would you, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, every, the system currently, right now, that we operate under, and we unfortunately just barely survive, but the system that exists now is just pushing us down and is designed for us to fail. Mm -hmm. There's no two ways about that. So when you have some an alternative to it, and a well-thought-out one, too... It, it's a, it's an opportunity. It's a chance. It's hope. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of things. And when people, if you, it's well thought out, people can plug in and say, "Oh wow, like I haven't even thought of these things before." Mm. It's really powerful. I think something that's really hopeful is that you know that that there's a lot of people who are putting their efforts of organizing in solidarity with with one another to make a create a better world and like I have hope for that I have lots of hope that that can happen but I would say that the only way that I'm going to have hope is that if people are loving and compassionate that's super super important because I think that a lot of people are so ego driven in this country they're all about like oh I'm so you know, like, what What about me? What about me? What about me? That also creates a lot of suffering, too. Mm -hmm. But if we can get over ourselves and work together, and if we're going to be organizing, we have to be over ourselves. We have to be loving and compassionate and, you know, work on ourselves, take care of ourselves, but then also look at, like, how this world is affecting everyone. And if that was actually happening, we'd be in a way better place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, uh, like, if there's going to be any sort of organizing, it has to be rooted in love and compassion. I'm, I'm an anarchist, so I believe that, you know, there can't be these hierarchies. I think that that really, when we have these in place, and, like, that's how people think of, like, going up the ladder that creates all of these oppressions that we see all the time daily in, in our interactions and the structures that are there. So if we can root that out and we can look horizontally at one another and in a way of cooperation where people are taking and building and creating relationships with one another, that's going to be a really beautiful place for all of us. So let's get rid of the the hierarchical system that is designed for us to fail and, and put our efforts into working on a horizontal world where we cooperate and love each other. Word. <laughs> that was a short snip of the conversation I had with Daisy back five years ago. 
I want to close out the show staying on this train of alternatives and robust work around reimagining and creating the new in the shell of the old, while returning to the realm of artistic expression. In Denver, I got to meet Stefan and Jamie, aka Br'er Rabbit and Johnny Five, who together have performed as Flowbots for the last two decades. In 2015, they were launching a project called No Enemies, working to bring songs back into social movements, experimenting with how an old tool might be updated for a new moment and used to question organizing dogma. Here is that interview with them. I'm Stefan Brackett. My rapper name is Br'er Rabbit, and um, one of the MCs of Flowbots. I think, I think if I were to encapsulate, I was like really taken with a Friarian change model, and just really passionate about different ways of introducing education and allowing for agency shift and our main mode is through the arts. My name is Jamie, aka Johnny Five, and I've got to where I am by rapping. Nice. And do you have kind of that same approach? You want to use it as a tool as well as through art? No, I'm making money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean as a tool. Yeah, a to tool. make money. Yeah, for, as a tool for the kids. We see music as a tool for social change and as a fun tool for social change. Mm-hmm. It brings people together. Anytime you have people together, you have power. But what we are is a place where people can come, like multi-issue across the movement and share songs and share like our spirit a little bit and I think that is pretty welcome and that brings us then in we're creating community for all these different movements in yeah. one place and trying to create kind of an undergirding for there's no lack of intellectual rigor and conversations and dialogue happening in movement there's not much emotional and there's not much spiritual and we do not claim to know how to do that but we find that that's where the arts live and it's not just music that needs to be integrated it's the visual arts and all of these other and like that's what we've been trying to do more and more in no enemies is kind of doing this open call because it's it's food it's the stuff that can help keep us going uh one of our mentors uh dr vincent harding the incredible civil rights leader expert wrote speeches for dr king wrote a, was it, is it Beyond Vietnam? Is it the he wrote Beyond Vietnam, Martin Luther King Jr. You're in good company then. Yes. Yeah. But he, he passed last oh. year. But one of the things he would do whenever we were having our meetings is he would, like when we have, we're doing different trainings and things like that with young folk, he would ask us, where are the songs? And he wasn't asking from an aesthetic basis. He was saying like, no, no, I, I witnessed this firsthand. The songs are an essential part of bringing disparate situations, anger, pain, together for a moment, together for a period of time, willingly, and then being able to like come to some just place of commonality, like despite all of these differences. When you ask the question, what do you want this to be? A lot of people don't ask that before they tell people to volunteer their time to come out. It's this unfocused wave as opposed to a, a focused, defined show of power. And that's what nonviolent action needs. It still needs to be a show of force. But without certain types of underpinnings and focusing, it ends up being very, uh, everybody comes with their own issue or their own take. Mm-hmm. And then like, what ends up being the easiest? Some of the chants are very easy to say. And a lot of them, a lot of actions I've been to, they have three. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing wrong with chants. But then there's also like songs of power, also very easy to learn and very easy to say. And they give it another color, another flavor. So we're also like trying to bring a bit of tactical thinking to 
a very quick tactical thinking to any of these actions. It's just like, okay, well, what what do you want? What is it? Justice. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> when do you, you want, want it? it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometime. Yes, well, yeah. if we keep on doing this way, never. Yeah. There's, but, yeah. There's yeah. so much superstition that like, oh, our, our moral superiority will somehow vaguely lead us to win. But and that's, yeah. But that's the amazing thing that like something that we found in our process is there is so much social science there's actually some hard science into nonviolent actions that nobody's drawing from. Like there is, there are, there are best practices for all of these things, and we from we've been in many circles and done many marches where we weren't able to access any of them. It's been recently that through a group called Momentum that we've been getting some actual training and access to like these materials that are out there that they're now using the presidential campaigns, but first came from nonviolent actions. Mm-hmm. But it's just it's another thing that needs to be. I think songs are a great way to gently bring that kind of thinking right. back into it. And I think that's why it's also, we haven't felt much resistance either. Yeah. And, and it's not like we're coming in, like No Enemies is not necessarily an organization that has its own agenda. We're actually trying to make ourselves available to reintroduce this tool to activist culture. And the, the, the thing has been largely an experiment, and it's been really amazing seeing both the local response and even national responses and invitations that... We're getting to like try to train and bring song leaders back to organizations, but yeah, it's 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 tactical. But I would say like the first, there's several first steps. One is look around in your in your area for something. We encounter so many people that are doing similar things in other cities. Because um, it's, it's just time. That's one thing you notice. Know, it's, it's time. People are looking for this again. Mm-hmm. The other thing is too, just it, it's a it's a lens. It's a question, and the question is, what are songs that a group of people can sing together? And all together in public and share, you know, share collectively, and that's it. So listen to songs on the radio. Listen, think of any song you're listening to. Think, huh? What's the part of this that might really resonate? Um, what's the part of this that could change the words around and we could all sing it? And it could be powerful. Mm. Um, if you're somebody that's already going out to demonstrations and rallies, just apply that lens when you're trying to figure out what to do with the rally, because you, it's not that hard to write, create new material to go sing together. And like some of it, we've been. We've been looking at how songs in the past were made, and the uh, you know, Southern Freedom Movement is so mythologized. But then, when you actually look at it mechanically, half most of those songs from the Southern Freedom Movement came from old spirituals. And the reason they came from spirituals is not because everybody thought the songs were great. No, as a matter of fact, those songs were really old to most of the people. But they were songs that everybody knew the melody. Mm-hmm. So when you change like hands, like hands on the plow to eyes on the prize, people are like, oh, okay, they just switch the words, but they knew the melody. You can do the same thing with Taylor Swift's song. You can make it about the Keystone. And then all of a sudden, you have Keystone Pipeline, and then all of a sudden you have like a group of people who are able to like kind of co-opt pop culture and sing this song powerfully. And so it's, it's, it's so different than trying to write a song that you're trying to get a Grammy for. Like It can be quick, and you just take the chorus of it, switch it around, boom, there you go. It's all about that change, climate change, no pipeline. It's all about that change, climate change, no pipeline. I mean, I know that's not Taylor Swift. Yeah, but sure. It is a song we sing. Yeah. And sometimes, like the other thing is, it's like sometimes it's more valuable to have something to sing together than like necessarily being like the most beautiful thing. Sure. Because if you start practicing it, then it just opens up. Once that question is asked, then like. All everything around you starts becoming an opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of yeah. okay, well, well, we can change this. Yeah, because and then you create that comfort too, and then somebody's like, "Hey, I've got an idea for a verse." Like, and then all of a sudden right. you're having right. like 
yeah. collaborative all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So just start doing it. That's the main thing. Yeah. Just start doing it because it's not a complicated thing. You don't need to be an expert. Just start doing it and we'll all get better at and it. And you don't need to sing well. That, that, that's one of the big things. It's right. Like, this is not about that's part of the problem is that people think, oh, I'm not a singer. Well, that's the whole point. Like, If you're a talker, you are. Like, yeah, if you can exactly. talk, you can sing straight up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and if you can't, then drum or do something. Like, I mean, right. no, and I don't mean it like yeah, yeah. disparagingly to drummers. I mean, even people <laughs> who do not have the ability to speak can if still you, be part of it. If you can't it. talk, you can drum. Yeah. This is a song that a friend of ours wrote. It's a, a, the first few lines of a much of a longer piece, but when we were thinking about the police killings and what, trying to imagine how you could take that anger and put it into a song rather than, you know, just wanting to break something, which seems like the much more, like, normal response to that level of rage. This song came to mind as a, you know, a possibility or a beginning, and it goes like this. These are, these are her words, obviously. It goes, I am a sleeping giant. There lives a riot in my bones. I am a sleeping giant. There lives a riot in my bones. I am a sleeping giant. There lives a riot in my bones. One more time. I am a sleeping giant. There lives a That was easy. It's easy, right? Yeah. That's beautiful, too. That's... Yeah, and then you can just imagine 20,000 people like that. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to imagine. I mean, in this case, like, mm-hmm. it's not outside the realm of imagination right now. But, right. but it's all about seeding a culture. And the more people, you know, the more people know it, the easier it is for all of us to sing it. Um, but also the more people who are ready to sing, even if they don't know it, they can jump in. Mm-hmm. So if we see ourselves as singers, if you see yourself as a singer, you you listeners, then the next time you show up at a rally and someone else tries to lead a song, you'll be ready. Mm-hmm. Don't be shy. Nobody cares. That's the other thing no. that I just try to explain to people. You know, nobody's nobody's watching you. Nobody's sitting there in judgment. Like the just to do, and the, the other thing is, I feel like once we get our demonstrations back to practices of power then uh, they will be powerful. And uh, this is one of the ways to kind of like get out of ourselves in the different ways that we're self-policing. And so we can uh, resonate and be powerful. It's obviously a little bittersweet to share all of these conversations in the ongoing context of a pandemic. Thinking about going to large demonstrations or about smaller gatherings to sing and plan actions. Thinking about how amazing the full plan of stump speeches and performances Kai and the team working on Breach would have been in person in the streets and thinking about all of the worker co-ops, projects, and groups that have been pinched more than usual under these conditions. At the same time, all of these conversations are about imagining something better, adapting, and starting to build it anyway. So I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you to Kai, Daisy, Stefan, and Jamie for your time and work, and to all of you for listening. You can find links to things we mentioned below, and you can find past episodes, transcripts, and all the rest at praxisradio.com. That's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O. I'll be back next week.